Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Hey, today we're starting, or we're continuing rather, in our preaching series that we've titled The Trellis. If you've been tracking with us from the beginning of the year, we've been following this theme of the garden. And we looked at the seed being planted and new life being sprouted out. And we've gone through books of the Bible and we've done topical series. And and this series for the next couple months leading towards our Advent series, which kind of blows my mind that I'm saying that, that we're heading towards our Advent series at the end of the year. But for the fall season, we're going to be in the series called The Trellis. And the premise behind this is that we want to put in our lives uh, intentional practices that will help us grow, be changed, and formed into the image of Jesus. The imagery that came to mind when plotting out this series was that, uh, that of a grapevine. Uh, we come from South Africa, if you've noticed uh, the accent, and uh, we, th- we, in the Cape region of South Africa, we have world-class wineries. And uh, I know we have this in California as well. But uh, the whole thing is that you'd put a trellis in place, and this trellis would help the vine grow and eventually bear fruit. And what we want to do in our spiritual life with the Lord is, is consider how can we intentionally build a trellis so that the Holy Spirit would be able to build our lives around this trellis that would ultimately bear kingdom fruit in our lives. It's, it's a series on practicing spiritual formation looking at different practices. And Benji teed it up for us last week. Pastor Benji, our lead pastor, is up in Encinitas today. And uh, if you want to listen to that, you can go on the podcast. But today we're going to be looking at the practice of Sabbath and of work. But before we dive into that, I just want to look at Robert Mulholland's uh, definition of spiritual formation, because we're going to keep coming back to this through the series He defines spiritual formation as the process of being formed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. The process of being formed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. This is a process that takes intentional focus, time, and energy into building out a life that will ultimately lead to you and me looking more and more and more like Jesus as we pursue the way of Jesus Yes, for ourselves so that we can grow and mature, but ultimately for the sake of others and the world around us. The process of being formed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. Now, before we jump into our passage this morning, which is page one of the Bible, Genesis chapter one and two, I just want to give us a bit of background. The first five books of the Bible, if you know this, have been accredited to Moses, uh, which means that the original audience, the time of which the books were written and read to the original audience, would have been, uh, the audience would have been the people of Israel who had very recently been liberated from slavery in Egypt. We know that story, right? They were trying to figure out in this moment in history what it means to live as a human being under God's rule and reign as opposed to living under Pharaoh's rule and reign. And so Moses is inspired by the Holy Spirit and writes the sacred text in the shape of what it ultimately, actually, in the original language, is in the form of a poem. It's poetic and it's beautiful. And, and the poem that, that Moses writes is about the relationship between the creator and the creation. 
and it's a poem about the relationship actually between work and rest. I don't know if you've ever opened your Bible on page one and read the story of creation and considered it to be a poem about our relationship with work and rest. But as we approach the scriptures today, can you look at these first pages of the Bible through that specific lens, the lens of a relationship between work and rest, creator and created. So we're going to jump through Genesis 1 and 2, and we've picked out a few passages. So you can follow along with me. You can open up your Bible. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. We read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. Then the Lord planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and he placed the man he had formed. And there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance, and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as, all, as well as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Skip down to verse 15. The Lord took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. A poem giving us this interplay of relationship between work and rest. We're going to look today at what it means to live as a human being in light of our work and in light of the command that the Lord gives us with Sabbath. Let's start with work. Because, let's be honest, what is the first thing you ask someone when you meet them? You know, after asking them their name and then fumbling around a few questions about the weather or, you know, kind of some odd questions, awkward conversation, we get to the question, so what do you do? right? That's, that's often how we start an interaction with someone. What do you do? And we often say this in the church, particularly in the church, and there's truth in this statement, ultimate truth in the statement, but we often say it's who you are that matters, not what you do, right? That, and that's totally true. Because of Jesus Christ and the work that he's done for us, we are saved and who we are matters so much more than what we do. But what we do always flows out of who we are, so both are important. What we do and who we are are important. And John Mark Homer, he says this. He says, all too often there is this massive disconnect between the spiritual life and life. The way of Jesus isn't about detaching from the world and hiding in a mountain cave. And Jesus was a construction worker or a carpenter or masonry, whatever, and then he was a rabbi or a teacher, his way is about living a seamless, integrated life where the polarization between sacred and secular is gone, and all of life is full immersion in what Jesus called the kingdom of God. But this will never happen unless we recapture a theology of work and rest, and I love this language that he uses, and the art of being human. 
the art of being human, this relationship between work and rest. So I ask us the question, because this is a kind of a fundamental question that all through the ages human beings have been asking ourselves, why do we exist and what are we here for? Why do we exist and what are we here for? Well, in Genesis, God says in chapter, tw- chapter 1, verse 26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. What's the next sentence? They will rule. There it is. What are we made for? Why are we here? That we will rule. God made humanity so that you and I would be rulers in his creation. In Hebrew, the original language from which this was written, this phrase can be translated, God made human in order to rule. He created you and I so that we would rule. You and I are created to rule over the earth. That's our meaning. That's our purpose. It's, it's the very reason why we exist. The, you see, the mantra of culture is to kind of escape work. God created us to work, to rule, to subdue the earth. And the mantra of culture today is this. It's that we work so that we can live, right? You know, the American dream, which started out as this brilliant idea that everybody can have a shot at a happy life, has devolved over the years into this desire to make as much money as possible and as little time as possible with as little effort as possible so that we can get off our work and go and live life and do the things that we really want to do, right? It's make as much money as you can so that you can go and do the things you want to do, go and live the life you want to live. But in Genesis' version or vision of what it means to be a human, God's original intent for you and I was that we don't work to live, it's that we live to work. You see, Genesis says that we were created to rule, to make something in God's good world. As part, it's part of what it means to be a human being, to work and to create. And the same can be true of rest. You see, when all we do is work, 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 and get sucked in into the 24-hour, seven days a week cycle with no space and no margin, we grind our souls down to the bare bone, and we become more machine than we do human being. And that is why when God gives us the sacred text, he starts off by giving us this beautiful rhythm of what it means to live an integrated life of work and rest as a human being as we discover the art of what it means to be a human. The first story in scriptures actually starts off with God working. This poem starts off with God working and then it ends with God resting. So we see for six days, God is hard at work. He's forming and he's filling the earth with life. And at the end of the week, we read that God saw all that he had made and he said it's very good. This is just God sitting back after a long, hard week of world creation, sinking into his armchair, so to speak, and thinking to himself, hey, not bad. Thinking, I crushed it, did a pretty good job right now. It's God drawing back from his labor and then enjoying the fruit of his labor. It's that sense of satisfaction. Maybe you've experienced it before, that fulfillment when you do a particular task and you sit back and you look at it and you think, man, that was, that was good hard work. And there's satisfaction and joy that's birthed in your heart as you experience the fruits of your labor. You know, back in South Africa, uh, in comparison to kind of home size in, in downtown San Diego, we had like a pretty big house and we had a pretty big yard. 
and uh, we had this beautiful yard. We lived there for eight years. Uh, it was probably a lot better when we moved in than when we moved out because I'm not a landscape artist. But um, I remember when we first moved into our property and uh, I was pastoring in the church and Caitlin was working uh, in a creative brand institute. And so my day off was a Friday. And so Caitlin would go off to work. It was before kids, um, which seems like a lifetime ago. But Caitlin would go off to work, and, and I would tend the yard, right, as a real man. And uh, I would get into the soil, and I would do the weeding, and I would do the cutting, and I would do all the gardening things, and I would clean the pool. And honestly, like, it took the entire day. It was pretty exhausting. And... Um, and, and it's not like my natural thing to do, but I would get stuck in and, and enjoy the fact that I was now a homeowner and a provider for the family and a real masculine man and do all the dirty stuff. And uh, in doing that, it was hard and it was grinding work. And it was every Friday I would like do this work. But you know what would happen at the end of the day? I would sit, we had this beautiful deck and we had nice furniture on the deck. I could sit on the deck and, and, and just overlook my, my domain of uh, successful yard work and I would have this sense of joy and satisfaction and pride that would come after a good solid honest day's work and that's, that's what God kind of breathed into the rhythm of creation the satisfaction and joy and peace and delight that comes from a good day's work we read in Genesis, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all the work. Now, rest here that's given to us in Genesis was not because God was tired or worn out or burnt out. He, he wasn't like exhausted, so like, ah, oh, I need a break. And so he just like chilled and watched Netflix. It was more an act of delight. Wow, this is good work. And I'm a delight in its fruits. God's enjoying the fruits of his labor. Tim Keller, in his excellent book on work, Every Good Endeavor, he says, and defines work, he says, in the beginning, then God worked. Work was not a necessary evil that came into the picture later, but something human beings were created to do, oh, sorry, sorry, or something that human beings were created to do, but was beneath the great God himself. No, God worked for the sheer joy of it. There's joy modeled for us from the Creator in our work. And so the biblical story opens with God working to create a world for humanity. He creates a world for you and I, a place for us to experience and enjoy His presence. And humans are created to be co-laborers or to be partners with the Lord. We are God's partners. You are a partner of the living God. And the language that is used in Genesis is this imagery of, or the language of, in the image of God. He says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So he created man in his own image, and he created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. We are made, created in the image of God. In the original language in Hebrew, the word that is used here to define this phrase can also be translated, we were created as an idol, or we were created as a statue. The, an, an idol, what is an idol? An idol is an invisible representation, or sorry, rather, a visible representation of an invisible being. A statue in the first century world would have been placed in every temple of worship representing that God that they were worshiping so that the worshipers would have a framework or a, a visual picture of the God that they, they 
that they were worshiping what he was like. We are put on earth, and the earth is God's temple. It's the place where he dwells to make the invisible God visible. We are placed here as statues, so to speak, of the Lord to show the world what God is like. And because we are made in the image of God, we are also, get this, we are kings and we are queens, and the entire world is our kingdom. That's why in the very next sentence, God says that we were created to rule. One Hebrew scholar translated it as to actively partner with God in taking the world somewhere. So God has this plan of this garden-like city. And instead of placing us in that garden-like city, he places us in a garden and then invites us to partner with him as co-laborers to move the world and creation story forward towards this garden-like city. God's plan and intention for you and I is to work with him to put our hand to the ground and to create something in God's good world. And so what does it mean for you, if you're sitting here today, if this is our story, if this is the reason we were created, what if you're a server at a restaurant in this season of your life, or a full-time mom? Maybe you're an architect, or a nanny, or an entrepreneur, or an accountant, or a graphic designer, or a teacher, or a student. What does this mean for you? What does it mean for me? Well, it means a lot. For starters, it means that your work, what you do Monday to Friday or Saturday or Sunday or whatever your rhythm looks like, your work is a core part of what it means to be a human. See, when we get up tomorrow morning and you go to your job or your school, or you're not just going to earn enough money so that you can pay your bills. You're not just going to go and learn microbiology so that you can pass the test so that you can you know, get the job one day. You're actually being a human being. You're ruling over the earth. Brian, why are you spending so much time today talking about work and like practical stuff on day-to-day stuff? Because I want to tell you that God is concerned with your everyday life, that all of it is spiritual. And there is an invitation to partner with the Lord in the everyday stuff of life to co-create and move the world forward into something good. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. The word work that is used here in the, in the first pages of the Bible is the Hebrew word that is abed. But abed is also the same Hebrew word that is used all over the Bible, get this, for worship. The same word that God gives us for work in the opening pages of Scripture is used over and over and over again when God wants to talk about worship. So work and worship are, two, are not two separate ideas. In fact, they're the, they're the same word that is two different translations. So in, Genesis, in a Genesis-shaped worldview, all of life is actually worship. When we go to work every day, it's actually an act of worship to the Lord who made us, who created us. Tim Keller, again, he defines work as the rearranging of the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. That's what we're doing when we go to work tomorrow morning. So I want to tell you, you have a calling. There's a purpose for which God made you, and there is something that God has created you to do. Now, we may not all be living in like our desired career of choice, but what we put our hand to in this moment of time is an 
can be, with the right heart posture, dedication, focus, and commitment to the Lord can actually be an act of worship as we live out our daily lives. But in order for that to become a reality, we need to pause and take a moment to consider how can we cross the chasm that has been created between what is the false idea of the sacred and secular divide? The sacred and secular divide is this false idea that some things are sacred or spiritual and they matter to God, but other things are you know, secular or physical and they do not matter to God. The problem with this definition, this false definition, is that most of life, as we define it, would actually fall into the secular category. Think about it. Most of life, I don't know, 95% of your life is spent grocery shopping, walking the dog, cutting your toenails, going to the shop, reading a book in the park, going to bed at night, and working your nine to five. That's the stuff of everyday life. And so for most of us, we can feel, if we consider the sacred-secular divide and what we do with our day-to-day -day lives, we can feel a bit frustrated because we can think that what we do each and every day, our work, our rest, our play, how we unwind and enjoy God's good world when we go on vacation, it was we enjoy creation itself and actually go to the desk and do our accounting job. We can feel frustrated because if we consider it to be a secular thing, we will process it through the viewpoint that it is meaningless and pointless and doesn't actually matter in the grand scheme of heaven and hell and eternal life because it's not sacred or spiritual. But go and do an exercise. Take your Bible, open up the Old Testament, scan the Old Testament, find for me the word spiritual. You will search in vain. The word spiritual cannot be found in the Old Testament because a, in a Hebrew worldview, all of life is spiritual. Everything we do is spiritual. There was no need for them to talk about the sacred and the secular because everything was sacred. God wants to be involved in all areas of our lives, friends. Every square inch of our lives because everything is spiritual and by result, everything matters to God. So you're a project manager at work. Great. You're also a priest. You're a teacher. Yes, fantastic. But you're also a priest. You're a college student or a stay-at-home stay mom or stay-at-home dad or an entrepreneur. Fantastic. You're also a priest. You're, we, we are all image bearers of God, created to rule and to partner with the Lord, to work and to draw out the earth, its potential, and unleash the potential in this good world for human flourishing so that we can enjoy God's good presence. But in order to work well, we need to learn how to rest well. And this is not just a good idea. You see, we put our hand to the task. God invites us to partner with Him. We go and we are faithful in whatever job you're doing right now, whatever your life looks like right now, whether it's a student or a stay-at-home parent or an entrepreneur or a very successful businessman or woman. We do it as an act of worship before the Lord because work is the core reason or one of the core reasons for which we are created. But we need to tap into the rhythm that is given for us in the first pages of Scripture, this rhythm and this interplay between work and rest. Because if we're going to work well, we need to learn how to rest well. You see, in modern day life, it's actually quite easy to motivate people to go and do a good job, to go and work really hard, 
earn the money, pay the bills, be faithful, go and do your job well. That's actually the easy part. The hard part is to invite people into this interplay to learn how to rest well. We are made in the image of God, friends. We are made to mirror and mimic what God is like to the rest of the world. God works, okay? So we work. God also rests. So we are invited to rest. So let's consider rest for the remainder of our our message this morning, or Sabbath, to use biblical language. In Genesis 2, at the end of the creation story, we read this. So the the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. The word rested in Genesis chapter 2 is this Hebrew word Shabbat. It's where we get the word Sabbath from. It essentially means to stop or to cease, but it can also be translated to celebrate. Sabbath isn't just a day to not work. It's a, it's a day to delight. It's sitting on the deck in your home in South Africa, overlooking the garden that you have poured your blood, sweat, and tears into, and enjoying the delight or the fruit of your labor. It's the Lord sitting after creating the world and on the seventh day resting and enjoying the good creation and the fruits of his labor. Sabbath is to delight in life, to delight in the life that has been carved out for us in partnership with God, to delight in the world around us, to to get on your SUP and to paddle around Coronado, delighting in the Lord's good creation, or to jump on your e-bike and, you know, do whatever e-bike people do or to get on your surfboard, or to play with your dog, or it's to delight in God's good world. And it's also to delight in the Lord himself. After six days of work, God rested, and in doing so, he built a rhythm into creation itself. We work six days, and then we rest one, just like God, whose image we bear. The creator God is inviting us to join him in this rhythm, this interplay between work and rest. And when we don't accept his invitation, we reap the consequences, right? If we're talking about building out an intentional trellis from which the Spirit of God can breathe life and form us into the way of Jesus, how we work and how we rest is really important because it shapes the core of who we are as human beings as we learn the art of being human. And when we don't accept God's rhythm for work and rest, we bear the consequences of fatigue, burnout, anxiety, depression, busyness, worn down immune systems, low energy levels, anger, tension, confusion, and emptiness, all of which are signs that we are living a life that is unsustainable without rest. Maybe that's why, I don't know if you know this, that Sabbath is actually a command given to the Israelite nation. When Israel was at the base of Mount Sinai, they had come out of Egypt, they parking their way through the desert, They get to the base of Mount Sinai. Their leader, Moses, gets to the top of the mountain. God comes down in fire and lightning and a whole big deal. And then he reveals for them the Ten Commandments. He gives them, he instructs the people, hey, as my people who are now free, this is how you should live. Gives instructions like, do not commit adultery. Don't kill anyone. Love me with all of your heart. And he gives us kind of these commandments for life for how we can flourish as human beings. And his vision for humanness is shrunk down into these 10 commandments. But guess what? Guess which commandment gets the most amount of airtime? 
Which commandment has the most amount of detail and explanation attached to it? He said, hey, don't kill anyone. Don't cheat on your wife. Love me. And then he goes into a whole long spiel or, or talk on the Sabbath. Sabbath gets more attention to any other command on top of Mount Sinai. The Sabbath starts off, he says, God says, remember the Sabbath. And so Sabbath, by implication, is actually something that the Lord notices as something that's easy for us to forget. It's easy to get stuck into this 24-7 go-go-go hamster wheel of the modern world. It's easy for it just to become another day in the rat race. You know, it's an, another day to fall into the pattern of work, bar, sell, repeat. And God says, hey, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. At one point, Moses calls the Sabbath a gift. And that's exactly what it is. Yes, it's a command. It's an instruction from the Lord. But this instruction is a gift. It's like when I tell my kids, hey, you need to go to bed. It's bedtime now. That instruction is actually my expression of care towards them as a parent. Because I know in order for them to flourish and thrive the next day, they need to get a good amount of rest. Or, hey, you cannot eat M&Ms for dinner because you need to nourish it. I mean, you know the deal. By the way, don't eat M&Ms for dinner. You need, we, we give instruction as an act of love and as a gift. God's good gift towards us is that He cares enough to build out a structure and rhythm for our lives. And just like work, when resting, when Sabbath thing is done right, it can also be an act of worship. You can rest as an act of worship to the Lord. Did you know that? The Sabbath is also a day to remember that we are not God. See, we take a day off, and guess what? The world gets on just fine without us. The Sabbath is a day to celebrate this reality, to celebrate our weakness, our mortality, and our limits, and to celebrate our God, to rest with Him, and most importantly, to rest in Him. So the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, we don't just take a day off from work and chill and do nothing. We take a day off from the toil. We take a day off from consumption. We take a day off from the American dream of let's get ahead and let's get enough stuff to like hopefully make me happy. We give him all of our fear, all of our anxiety, all of our stress and all of our worry. We let go and we just be. And we remember our place in the universe so that we never forget that there is a God and that I am not him. Now, I don't know if you know this, but we get two versions of the Ten Commandments in the Scriptures. The first is in Exodus when Moses goes up the mountain. But then in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses gives the Israelite nation a reminder. And both accounts of the Ten Commandments are almost identical, but they end on a pretty different note. At Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20, we read, For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. So at Sinai, the Sabbath command is rooted in the creation story. But in Deuteronomy, it ends like this. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and your Lord your God brought you out of, out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. This is why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Here, in the second account of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath command is grounded in the story of the Exodus. At Sinai, the Sabbath was about tapping into the rhythm of creation. But in Deuteronomy, the Sabbath is an act of 
defiance against Pharaoh and his slave drivers. If you don't know the story, Israel was in captivity in Egypt, and they were under Pharaoh's oppressive rule. They were slaves, and they had to work, work, work with no rest. In Deuteronomy, the Sabbath is given to the Israelite nation as an act of defiance against a slave driver, Pharaoh. At Sinai, it was a way of saying yes to God and his good world. But in Deuteronomy, it's a way of saying no to Egypt and its system. At Sinai, it's an invitation to join God in delighting in the good creation. But in Deuteronomy, it's a warning to stay away from Egypt and its way of life. But why in the world, think about this, why in the world would Moses have to remind the Israelite nation to not go back into slavery? Like they've just gone through 400 years as slaves. Why would they need to be reminded to not go back there? Because Israel was prone to forget, and so are we. You see, it's easy to forget the past. And, and, and so the Sabbath actually becomes almost a memorial. At Sinai, it looks back to Eden. But in Deuteronomy, it looks back to Egypt. And Egypt is somewhere we never want to go back to. You see, in Egypt, the, the, the Hebrews were slaves. Uh, they, slaves don't get a, a Sabbath. They don't get to rest. Slaves are something almost less than human. They have value only in what they produce. They work all day, every day, until they die with no rest. And all of their life is accumulated into what can you produce. What, what, you, what you're worth is what you produce. Rest is never an option for a slave. And today, 2023, I would argue that Pharaoh is in our culture alive and well. Pharaoh is your cell phone, calling for your attention all the time, distracting you from the ways of Jesus. Pharaoh is that guilty feeling in your gut when, when, you, when you're not working. Or you get to the, and this happens to me all the time, you can ask Caitlin, at the end of a restful day, of a day of delight, what do I often say to her? feel like I didn't achieve anything today. And I have this guilty feeling, this unrest, this restlessness in my soul because I'm not delighting in God's good creation and recognizing that there is a God and it's not me. I'm not giving attention to the fact that actually the world's going to get on fine without me and I am not worth what I produce. Pharaoh is that voice in the back of your head screaming at you, work harder, work faster, work longer, produce, 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 buy, get, store, achieve. And it's not just Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh's economic system is alive and well today. We don't call it Egypt anymore. We just call it capitalism or consumerism or Black Friday. Israel isn't the only one that's prone to forgetfulness. Some of us actually want to go back to Egypt. We miss it there. After all, Egypt is pretty lousy if you're a Hebrew, but let me tell you, Egypt was a pretty cool place if you were Egyptian. And there's a little bit of Egypt and a little bit of Pharaoh in, in each of us. Our endless desire for more, to get, to earn, achieve, to accumulate, with this endless desire gets this restlessness in our souls. This, this angst, this anxiety, this need for more, this never reaching satisfaction or fulfillment. Friends, when we Sabbath, what we do is we leave Egypt behind. 
We, we, it's about emancipation from, from Pharaoh's suffocating rule on our lives. When we, when we rest and we stop, after good hard work, yes, but when we rest and we stop, it's actually about freedom. You know, Americans, we, we're, we're, we're working more than ever before. Uh, this is large part is, is due to technology. This, these so-called labor-saving devices have actually skyrocketed the amount of hours that we spend working on average. Uh, we used to have to go to the office or the job site to get your work done. Now all you have to do is lean over in the middle of the night and just pick up your cell phone to engage with work. We need to learn how to power down, to unplug, to disconnect, to take a break, to be in one place at one time, not so that we can just chill, but so that we can enjoy our God who so desperately wants to be with us. We, we, need to, we forget that we're not a machine. We can't work 24-7. It's so easy in a city like ours to just be busy, 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 and work, 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 and to try our best to pay the bills and to do the stuff, but actually God is inviting us into a rhythm of work and rest. In a wor world of workaholism and nonstop technology and consumerism, recalibrating our lives around, around the rhythm of work and rest is more important now than ever. And one study done, it's a fascinating study that was, uh, took into account who are the happiest people on earth. Uh, they were looking at a subculture group. And uh, what came as a result, and this is crazy, it's a, the, the happiest people on average is the subcultural group of the Seventh-day Adventists. Now, if you know anything about the Seventh-day Adventists, they religiously practice, um, like, very strictly taking a day off, a Sabbath. And what is fascinating is that they found that this group, the people that religiously practice taking a day off, like, to the extreme, they were actually classified as the happiest people on earth. Get this, the Seventh-day Adventists also live, on average, 10 years longer than any other subcultural uh, group. And the, the study was then done to say, actually, if you take the average lifespan of a human being and you accumulate, if they took a Sabbath, how many years would that, and how many Sabbath days have they taken? What would that add up to in years? Fascinating, shock, it would add up to 10 years. If basically scientifically proven, if you take an intentional rest, you are literally adding on years to your life. Sometimes you think, I can't take a break because I'm too busy. I've got too much to get done. No, you're, you're too busy to not take a Sabbath. You're too busy. Life is too hectic for you to not take a Sabbath. In the United States, we make up over 22% of the global economy, yet we only have 4% of the world's population. California alone puts out over $2 trillion a year. That's more than the entire GDP of Italy. And California has 37% lower population than Italy. Since 1950, the per capita income of America has tripled, and the average size of the American home has gone up by almost 1,000 square feet from about 1,300 to 2,300. But in spite of all this exponential growth, we are as unhappy as ever. We spend about $250 billion a year as a nation on prescription drugs. Antidepressants are the second most popular prescription in the United States after cholesterol medication, both pointing to consumerism and consumption. So to sum up, we work more than ever before, we have more than ever before, and we're still miserable. It's Egypt all over again. This is why Moses is calling Israel to remember that we were slaves in Egypt. 
But the command isn't just that we were slaves in Egypt. It is that we were slaves in Egypt, meaning we're not anymore. Just like Israel, we forget that Pharaoh is dead and our value is not tied into what we accomplish. Sabbath is an act of resistance to Pharaoh and his system. The goal of work isn't just to make money to buy stuff. It's to partner with God, to co-labor with Him, to cooperate with the creator of the universe, to take the world forward somewhere, to provide human flourishing, and then to take a step back and delight in God's good creation. And so work is a good thing, but so is rest. And work is not the thing, and neither is rest the thing, because you'll either become a workaholic or just completely lazy. It's this interplay between work and rest and the art of being human. So let's end, friends, by looking at what Jesus says to those who are feeling stressed out in life. Because that's probably all of us. All of us at some point feel stressed out and burdened. And I'm going to invite Jen and, and Drew back up as we close out our morning together. Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 sits with his disciples and he just gives them an invitation. He sits with those who are busy, stressed, maybe a little bit too busy, working too hard, feeling the pressure of bills and the cost of inflation. And let's be honest, the rental in San Diego is pretty intense. And so we can get sucked into this way of thinking that actually I need to do more and achieve more. And we do. We need to work hard and put our, we've gone through that. But we also need to take a step back and trust that there is a God and that I am not Him. And so Jesus stands with His disciples and He gives them an invitation he says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The people that Jesus is speaking to here are in need of rest. They're in need of just stopping and being present with God. And Jesus is here to usher in the full promise of this rest. The, he, he is, he, Jesus himself is God's rest. And the people can come to him. He's inviting them to find true rest in him. True Sabbath rest is found in a person, and his name is Jesus. Jesus reminds the people of God's original intention of the Sabbath, which is unity with God, unity with the creation, and unity with each other. And Jesus teaches that the Sabbath points to Him. We work hard, we co-labor, we take rest and delight in Him. One of Israel's prophets promised that we would find this merciful rhythm, this, this rest in a person who, who will restore all of what was lost in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, God's original intent for creation was disrupted. And work became toil. Work became cursed. But work itself was not created as cursed. We will work again in the new creation. And that work will be joyful and full of delights. When followers of Jesus observe the Sabbath, after a good, honest week of work, we live as though this new creation is our reality right now. So we draw into the present the future reality of God's kingdom here on earth. It's an act of worship. Sometimes we view like, oh, to bring God's kingdom come needs to be the spiritual stuff. 
And yes, it's all the spiritual stuff, but you know what's also spiritual? Working hard and resting well. It's what it means to be a human being. And when we trust in God's invitation and we come to Him and we truly rest in Jesus, we become places, get this, we become places where His presence is pleased to dwell. And so what this does, this practice, what does this look like for you and me as modern-day disciples of Jesus, as followers of Jesus? Well, I want to tell you, God does not, this is not about us observing a law. God does not expect us to observe Israel's laws. That's done. However, there is wisdom of these laws that continues to outplay itself in our modern-day life. Sabbath, is, it's like, for instance, you know, we're not bound by the laws of the Ten Commandments, but it's pretty wise to not cheat on your spouse. It would be a good idea to not to kill anyone. It's a great idea to observe the Sabbath. Sabbath is not a command we are bound to, but it is a promise that we are invited to enjoy. Sabbath rest is an act of regular and intentional trust that God is ruling the world. When we stop working, we can truly rest in God's presence. When we practice this purposeful pause, we make room for God to take up residence in our individual lives and within our community. And when we do this, we take part in this new creation story, we draw it into the presence, setting the stage for God to make His dwelling place amongst humanity once again. Mark Slomka, pastor, friend, mentor, you know him. He once said this, Through Jesus, we have the ultimate gift. He fulfills the law and restores it as a gift, but or he becomes our incarnate Sabbath in whom we can enjoy rest seven days a week. I don't think he withdraws the gift of the Sabbath invitation so much as he guarantees its meaning and promise for us. Because now the Sabbath is a day to rest and a person to rest in. So what is the practical application of this? I just want to encourage you, seriously, just try plan an actual 24-hour Sabbath into the rhythm of your weekly life. Try build it into your calendar, a day to delight and rest. You're not going to go shopping and consuming. You're going to rest. You're going to enjoy God's good creation. You're going to delight in the fruits of your own labor and the labor of God himself. And invite your family, invite your friends into this rhythm. Because this is what it means to be a human being, is to live into the rhythms of what God created. The art. Isn't that beautiful? The art of being a human. Think through what it would look like to not have technology as part of your Sabbath. Make sure that you prepare for your day of Sabbath, your day of rest. You know, clean the house the day before. Don't spend your day cleaning. Don't, don't spend your Sabbath day doing grocery shopping and catching up on all the errands that you didn't achieve during the week. Delight. Be with the Lord. Invite Him into your family, into your space. And then one last encouragement for our community. Maybe you can consider who in this community you can bless with the Sabbath. Maybe you're a student and you notice a single mom or a family in the church and you're like, you know what would be a blessing for that person or that couple? is like free babysitting. Maybe it's, hey, I know that that couple, that family are financially a bit tight right now, but you know what would bless them for a Sabbath? is a gift voucher to like a really nice restaurant. What are some creative things that we could do to bless each other with a Sabbath? 
Because we're a family on mission, right? It's one thing for me to take a Sabbath, but what would it look like for, communi- for our community to flourish and thrive? And how can you be a part of that? Okay, I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to close in the time of worship. And I just want to read that same passage from Matthew chapter 11. And it's Eugene Peterson who translates the Bible in a beautiful poetic language. I just want to read this over your life as an invitation from Jesus. Maybe you want to close your eyes. He just invites us to this. He says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Come to me. Get away with me and you will recover your life. It's Jesus' invitation to say, hey, come live life like I live it and you will recover your own life. I will show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. I love that. He says, I will show you how to take a real rest. But it's not just rest all day long, every day and be lazy. No, he says, you will find real rest as you walk with me, as you work with me. And watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't let anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you will learn to live freely and lightly. What a vision for life. A life that is free and light. Unforced rhythms of grace, giving us joy in our Father and real rest. So we just pray, Holy Spirit, won't you empower us to lean into, give us the courage, give us the boldness to accept that rhythm of life that Jesus created for us. We thank you, Lord God, that you have a vision for human flourishing. And there is an invitation to step into this good relationship of working well and resting well. Come, Lord Holy Spirit. Come, Lord God. Breathe new life into our rhythms. Give us a vision for what my Monday to Sunday can look like that is going to create joy and flourishing and fullness of life where I live in intimacy with the Father, joy in the presence of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do good work and to take real rest. We thank you that you love us, that you pursue us, and that you are for us. We trust you, Lord. We trust that there is a God, that you are him, and that I am not. And I thank you for the security that that provides in my everyday life. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.